0: If you have your Bibles, please open to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 12 through 16, as our sister just read. It's page 554 in the Bible, uh, in the pew back in front of you. Uh, when I was a little boy, my dad used to take me to the ballpark in Arlington to watch the Rangers play. And i um, so thankful that he did. We used to buy seats in the upper deck, uh, because my dad was also a pastor. And by the end of the game, uh, seventh or eighth inning, the aisle attendants would be pretty lenient on who could come down and watch the game. Do you guys remember this at the old Arlington Stadium? And so by the end of the game, we would come down and we would sit and watch the game. Same game, just a much closer view of the game than we were watching. That's kind of what Solomon is doing here. We're talking about some of the, uh, the same topics as we have been talking about. He's, he's really been driving home the point of meaningless, meaninglessness as we've been hitting over and over again. But he's, he's bringing it closer in as he's kind of finishing out his point today. And, and we'll see here in the scripture, for the very first time in the book of Ecclesiastes, he actually opens up this ray of hope for us that everything is actually not meaningless, In fact, with God, everything is meaningful. And he shows us that today. Now, we still have to go through the wilderness a bit before we get to that hope. So bear with us, bear with the text this morning. But even though we're covering some similar topics, there is something new. He's not being redundant for redundant sake. He's doing so intentionally so that we would really grasp what it is that he is saying. So I hope, as the word is preached today, that your soul is nourished, that you would be reminded that things are meaningless apart from God. But with God, there is meaningfulness in life. The main point of the passage today, just kind of a, a, a summary point for all of us to kind of follow along with, is simply this. All your life and all your work Is meaningless unless you have enjoyment in God. All your life and all your work is meaningless unless you have enjoyment in God, which is ultimately where we're gonna end up today. In verses 12 through 17, he's gonna kind of summarize yet again this wisdom that he's been trying to apply uh, to his life. Uh, In verses 18 through 20, Solomon kind of shows that uh, work, toil, is under the microscope of inspection to see if the answer of life can be found in our toil. And then finally, he shows us what God provides and how everything is meaningful in verses 24, 25, and 26. So the first point, look with me there, uh, is simply this. Our wisdom for life proves meaningless. In verse 17 of our passage, he is despairing over life in general after he considers all of his pursuits. But before he gets to the despair, he he kind of leads us in a way to kind of show us how he got to the despair. Look with me in verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Verse 13. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Here in verses 12 through 17, the preacher kind of turns back to summarize this pursuit of wisdom and and how he's also um, kind of uh, walked in folly and madness as well. There are consequences in life when you apply foolishness to it. That's essentially what he's saying. We know what this means, right? Uh, to, uh, to consider wisdom versus folly. Uh, let's say you have a job and you're uh, constantly arriving late to that job uh, and you're not showing up at the time you're expected to. Well, that folly will produce consequences, Right? You will become untrustworthy, uh, un- not dependable, uh, ultimately even being fired potentially from that job. But if you have wisdom and you're just doing the things that you're supposed to do, uh, showing up on time and-, and putting work in, there is productivity we know that there's wisdom in eating well. Your, your body is taken care of better. There's uh, folly in eating bad things. We, we know generally how wisdom and folly work together. And what he's saying here is that there is more wisdom to gain than there is folly. Uh, Solomon's also kind of saying there in verse, seven, or in verse 12, he says, look, I've considered all of these things I know what they are, and, and what can man do after the king? Uh, which is a really kind of an alpha king statement, right? Like, all that I have accomplished, you're not going to be able to accomplish as much as I have, uh, don't even try to do this. Parents, we kind of know what this is like when uh, we are trying to teach our kids something that uh, to, to not do certain things that we've done in life, right? Like do as I say, not as I did kind of thing. Uh, Solomon is essentially getting to that same thing, but he wants us to see that there's this contrast between wisdom and folly. Uh, perhaps you've heard it said before that the early bird gets the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese. Have you ever heard that uh, second part of it? Uh, the, 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 the late bird gets no food, right? There's no, there, there's folly there. And the first mouse gets caught in the trap. So, so we do know, uh, generally speaking, what wisdom and folly are. And, and he says there is greater gain in wisdom he even provides this beautiful mental picture for us, some, some images to show the contrast even further. He says there is more gain in wisdom over folly, and he contrasts, the more, uh, the, he contrasts between light and darkness and how there's more gain in light than there is in darkness. I don't think I have to explain this uh, very much. We've all walked through the kitchen at night with a lamp on and the helpfulness that a lamp provides versus walking through the kitchen without a lamp on. And so he's saying that light is compared to wisdom and darkness is compared to folly. I remember when I was in high school, I, when I was only foolish, let me, let me just say that. I thought it would be really fun to turn off the lights at the head of my bedroom and then run five feet and jump onto my bed in utter darkness. Hit the lights, I ran, I jumped into my bed and I completely missed my bed and I went into the wall. (laughs) Denting the wall and for the very first time in my life, I saw stars. (laughs) The reality is this, light helps us to see objects so that we can make decisions, decisions that are better decisions. Proverbs 4.10 says, wisdom helps us navigate this world and I, I, I hope we understand that there is gain in wisdom even under the sun, in that we can make better decisions. But look with me at his findings in verses fourteen and fifteen. He he goes a little bit deeper in his penetration. He says, um, and yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them, both the wise and the fool. It, then I said in my heart what happens to the fool will happen to me also Why then have I been so very wise and I had said in my heart that this is also vanity For of the uh, for of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance Seeing that in the days to come all will have long been forgotten and how the wise dies just like the fool S- simply put though there's a gain in wisdom Solomon is coming to the reality that both the fool and the wise person, though they might live differently, maybe, maybe the path they walk is a little bit different. It, maybe it's a little bit straighter, a little bit easier for the person that walks in wisdom. The end result is indistinguishable. De- death levels the wise person and the fool, and Solomon's kind of dealing with this in his heart. He's coming to this reality. Uh, No one is remembered. We've talked about this. No one, or everyone, excuse me, will be forgotten, and everyone dies. Death helps us realize that none of us are actually better than the other person. Uh, It should create some sort of humility in our heart that helps us realize that no matter how we live in this life under the sun, we're all gonna die. And that makes us all equal because death has a final statement and saying over us. Last week I challenged us in the application portion portion to be brave and to consider your death. Now let me break that down a little bit further and I know that you're so thankful that I'm willing to do that for us. It is death that ultimately serves to alter Solomon's perspective here. It's death that's helping Solomon see that, my goodness, I've done all these things. I've accomplished all this stuff. And that person hasn't accomplished anything like I've accomplished, and yet we get the same thing. We get, we get death in the end. The preacher lived by wisdom, and yet he sees the same Fate. There's no consolation prize for those who do it better, per se. It's like a game clock in sports. If you guys watch football or basketball, these games that are timed. Time will run out, but time helps a team make decisions to come up with strategy, to live inside the time well. Uh, The reality is I think oftentimes we don't think about the game clock of our lives. And Solomon is thinking that this is actually going to come to an end and I'm reeling. It really doesn't matter if you win or lose. It's like death puts an end to the vanity. It, it, it sobers us to the reality that life is a vapor. And I, I, I as one of your pastors and I, I know the other pastors would say the very same thing to you, I desperately hope that we allow death to provide us a sober look at life. That we would that we would be confronted with the reality of death. Death is the brute fact which destroys all the judgments we make in life under the sun. It just levels us. And and it's deeper. This is like week three that we're talking about this. I hope it's seeping into our bones a bit as we consider life under the sun. We are tempted if we're to be honest to make this world our permanent residency but death in a very gracious way reminds us that we weren't made for this world that we're not meant to be here forever it teaches us that this is not our home Uh, and and look how he can kind of concludes this first section look at his frustration in verse 17 so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all his vanity and striving after when, he despairs and he hates life because of this. There's no justice in living wise, that's what he's saying. There's, There's nothing better that comes. What he's really hating is actually the curse itself. We often think that we live in a world that's fallen. We use that language a lot and when we say fallen, we're talking about sinfulness and death and all of these things. But he's he's kind of referring to more of a curse here. He's thinking more of the curse. Uh, uh, Yes, there's death, and death puts an end to all things. But Solomon is being confronted with the fact that there's no net gains in this life. In fact, there's only diminishing returns. How often do we consider the world that we live in as cursed? Intentionally established by God to produce meaninglessness for us we don't think about that as often as we think we just live in a fallen broken world I think here it's a good uh, it's a good practice for us to consider it's not going to turn out well for us it's not going to turn out well for any of us it's built not to satisfy us thinking about the curse can actually help us consider how life works how, how, how we can expect certain things from this life, how to deal with temptations that we know that will come in this life. This is kind of the blessing of, uh, of seeing the world through the lens of the gospel and recognizing this is what the curse, curse does for us. And so we should have a greater understanding of, of how it works. I wanna encourage us to do just that. I want to keep us from living it up. Uh, Life isn't meaningless, uh, or excuse me, living it up because we think now that life is only meaninglessness. Uh, Solomon says, no, that's vanity. Uh, Solomon then says, hey, I've acquired all these things, build up, YOLO, you only live once, get all that you can. And he's like, well, that's actually meaninglessness also. This is just a reminder for us, a warning for us to not pursue these things because they do not last. Uh, it's, uh, it's sober us to the reality that this life is gonna fade away and a new one will come. To the person who is uncertain about who God is, maybe you can Maybe you can relate to what it is that I'm saying. You've, you've checked all these things out uh, under every rock and read every article and tried this religion or that religion and you're curious about God, but you are not satisfied. I, I would encourage you to continue listening to this passage because Solomon is getting it just that. Under the sun, it is all meaningless. So thus far, he's considered wisdom and pleasure. And Solomon is saying that wisdom is better than seeking bodily pleasure and being foolish, but then death makes it all equal. That's kind of where we're at. And so uh, moving on to verses 18 through 23, which is where our second point is, our work in this life proves meaningless as well. So if it's not wisdom and it's not pleasure, Now he's got work on trial here. He wants to see if all he has done is going to bring satisfaction for him. Uh, Look with me uh, in verse 18. He said, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun. He, He realizes that everything he has done, you guys remember the list of things we talked about last week? All the Buildings, uh, the wealth, the possessions, and the entertainment that Solomon is responsible for—he just said in verse verse eighteen, "I hated all my toil; it does not satisfy." He realizes he cannot take it with him. It's that moment where it just clicks for him. He's like, "I've done all this, and I cannot take it with me." In fact, he rightly sees that he leaves it behind for another person and that person may be a wise person or that person might be a fool look with me at the second part of verse 18 18 seeing that i must leave it to the man who will come after me verse 19 and he, who knows whether he will be a wise person or a fool yet he will be master of all for which i have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun this is also vanity So summing that up, all his hard work, nobody worked harder than Solomon. All his hard work, everything that was brought to him is meant for another person. And he doesn't even know it's gonna be a wise person or a fool. We know biblically, it turns out that he gave his throne and his inheritance to a fool named Rehoboam. Uh, We see that Rehoboam turned out to be a fool because he did not listen to the counsel of wise men. And ultimately, Israel divided over it. And he's being confronted with this reality. All this stuff I'm doing is going to be given to another person. Perhaps you know who Malcolm Forbes is. He's the publisher of, of Forbes magazine. He once said that he who dies with the most toys wins. Solomon is saying he who dies with the most toys gives them to another person and actually loses. He's flipping it on its head. I heard one commentator say this week that, uh, you know, you never see a hearse following a U-Haul. It's true. Uh, It's true. No, you never see a U-Haul following a hearse. Yeah, that's that's it. (laughs) Solomon is being very blunt about work and how it's not the answer to which his soul is longing for under the sun. This human wisdom that he has, it is not satisfied in it. And look at his response in verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. The reality is this, those who look at their work for the answer will end up in the exact same position as Solomon at the end of their life in despair because the answer is not found there. All you work for, you're going to give away. Even if you've been wise in your dealings, you're going to give it away. Verse 21, sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil and the result is meaningless. Uh, think about the first question you ask when you meet a new person. It's often, what do you do for a living? Or um, what do you do for work? It's, it's almost like we're asking, who are you? <laughs> right? Because work means something to us. It identifies us uh, in this world and it can create, if we're not careful, an identity. It's interesting, just a few hundred years ago, there was only a few, like a few professions. You could be a craftsman or a doctor, a sailor, a farmer, maybe a preacher, a seamstress. There wasn't many to choose from. But but today we have so many different types of jobs and we're identified those jobs. In fact, not many of us in this room do the same thing. It's quite fascinating. I read in an article the other day that a huge major company uh, named Apple, if you've ever heard of them, is moving away from titles like associate and manager, and they're adopting titles like hero and Jedi. (laughs) I don't know if this is a work of Philip Moore when he worked at Apple or not, but it's in an effort to stay competitive with the market trying to identify and get new talent and getting the very best people. And the reality is this, we place personal value on what we do and this drives even silly name changes like hero and Jedi. That's reality, that's how much emphasis we put on work. A lot of this matters for us what we do and it's so knitted to our identity. Uh, this can lead to, to, toward a tendency of perhaps embellishing what we do, a- acting like we're more important than perhaps we actually are, uh, or, or making sure that people know that we're busy in the work that we, that we do, right? We, we want people to view us well. We want people to view us competent and successful in this life. Uh, we long for the feedback, right, from, from other people, that, that, that feeds that, that identity that we long for. Uh, we hate to hear critical feedback because it, it tears down everything we're trying to build up. We place a lot of emphasis in what it is that we do. And let's be honest, we're, we're addicted to work in many ways. Many of us are, just like Solomon because we think the outcomes of what work provides both materially and personally will be worth it. If, you know, a mom or a dad, a a friend, do you go home and do you stay on your phone? Do Do you wait for the next email? Do you check it all the time? It's honestly quite Easier to look for accomplishments and recognition at our work than it is to shepherd our children uh, or to be an intentional friend uh, to the people next to us. And so we kind, of, we kind of like grab onto work and we want it to be who we are because that's what's bringing us satisfaction. We are driven and controlled by the desire to keep up Uh, You know, do do you know when you're you're with your family and you get an email and you're like, I got to answer that email because if I don't, they're going to forget about me. Uh, I need to bring my my worth back up before them, so I I, I respond. We respond to the email, or we make sure that we're always in view because our worth is is tied to this. This is kind of the reality of how we view our toil in this world what it is that we did, what it is that we did for many years, what it is that we do now, what it is that we hope to do one day. And I'm taking my own soul to task on this. This is the beautiful work about being a pastor is you gotta deal with the text before you preach the text. And so the text just does, like it's doing work on my own heart. Whether it's preaching or it's counseling or discipleship, uh, there is a true desire to glorify God in the ministry of the word inside of me and I guarantee the other pastors would say the very same thing Uh, there's a desire for uh, each of our congregants to know God and to walk with God uh, for you to be formed and shaped into the image of Christ but if I'm not careful if I'm not careful I can be motivated by what you think about me I can can be motivated by uh, uh, whether or not you think I'm doing a good job as as the lead pastor of this church. And that's vanity. That's dangerous. We wanna be motivated by the right things. And so we're kind of forced in this passage to go down to our cores and to see and examine how we use work to our advantage. How we use things to make sure that our identity is solid and Solomon says there is no advantage there it turns out in the end that it's nothing because it's all vanity in fact he even says in verse 21 it's all evil because it's revealing who we are when we do this and not only do we give all of our accumulation away but look what it says in verse 22 we actually are full of sorrow when we work what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation even in the night his heart does not rest this is also a vanity the work we do in the day does it not haunt you at night does it not keep you up at night uh, uh, considering uh, relationships that you have at work and what might be wrong with them or whether or not your boss is seeing your work or if he's overlooking you or she's overlooking you? This is kind of what we do and what's crazy is, Solomon says, you work and then you give it all away and then you work and then you're miserable. You're, you're full of anxiety, you're you're, you're perplexed and you're, and your heart is... Sorrowful We've got to-do lists running uh, through our minds Uh, If you're a teacher, you're wondering why your students are disrespecting you Uh, And then we look to other jobs as rays of hope interviews to think That if I just move over to here Then it will be better But the problem is the curse is over here too And the same issues will continue when we try to find satisfaction in what we do. And this is what we are confronted with. And my hope for us as a congregation is that we would not build our houses on sand like this. This is sand. Uh, What we're going through ultimately doesn't last and and, uh, neither do we. At the end of life, Solomon essentially is confessing that he worked too much and he worked with the wrong motive. And work didn't ultimately prove profitable because he gave everything away and he didn't find the peace that he was looking for because he was miserable in his work while he was doing it. It in fact increases sadness. There's this sneaky little myth that's whispered into our ear that if you work harder and you get more, and you accomplish more, that your life is validated. And that is not true, according to the preacher, and according to the word of God. So my question to you today is this, are you a workaholic? Are you, uh, is is your identity tied to what it is that you do? Notice that I didn't ask if you were talented, I didn't ask if your competency opened up all these doors to you or opened up all these doors professionally for you. I asked if you are seeking satisfaction in this world through your work, your work alone. Uh, If you're using work to get something for yourself, a a gain for yourself, whether you uh, live to work or work to live, the answer is the same. It's the same really what Solomon is considering here further is death because he realizes that he would still be pursuing the same stuff if the cycle wasn't broken. If the cycle never ended, he would continue on just trying to get all that he wanted in this life. And it's death. that's actually been a great friend to him to see this. Uh, Blaise Pascal says, as men have not been able to cure death, misery, or ignorance, they have taken to not thinking about it so as to become happy. Uh, We ignore the reality of death and misery and all the difficulties in life, and we often hide in our work. We often use our work as a distraction. And the crazy thing is, if you want to really think about the madness of all of us in this room, is we use work to get away from the distraction of things that are real like death. And then we get to work and we get on our phones to be distracted from the work that we have. Right? It is what we do. And we toil and toil and spin. We use our computers to check scores and to send our personal emails. It's just we're looking for it in the wrong place. If you disagree with what Solomon is here, I need to tell you that you might be fully invested in seeking satisfaction where you work. I I would encourage, just a simple application, go to your room, sit in your room, turn off uh, all electronics, disconnect from the world and ask yourself, how do you view work? How do you view it? You might say, well, Blair, uh, you calling us to just be lazy? Uh, do you, are we not supposed to work? No, we're gonna get to the redemptive side of work here uh, momentarily. And, and I'm certainly not saying that we're not supposed to work. Uh, if maybe you know who Chris McCandless is. He, a book was written about him called Into the Wild. Uh, he, a movie was made about him. He graduated from Emory University in Atlanta. Really sharp guy and decided, I don't wanna work for the man. So he traveled across the country, living his life, enjoying life, didn't work, didn't do anything, just kind of a tumbleweed, weed blowing in the wind. And he makes his way all the way up to Alaska, where he's in the middle of nowhere, by himself, inside of an abandoned bus, and he starves. It's not found and not working either. Uh, This reality of vanity is all around us. So we've looked at wisdom, pleasure, and work, and all are destroyed by death. So what do we do? You're like, is there any way you can get the weight off my chest from the book of Ecclesiastes? And the answer is yes. In fact, this is the first of five enjoyment passages here in verse 24 that Solomon gives to us. These these little rays of hope that are real for us as people who worship and follow God. So the third point I want us to see today is this, that the joy God gives proves everything in this life is meaningful. And so you're like, where are you getting that from the text? Well, look with me there in verse 24. Solomon says, there is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God, verse 25, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Solomon exposed, it's, it's pretty interesting. He just, almost for two chapters in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's saying, hevel of heavels, everything is vanity, vanity, vanity. Everything I've done is vanity. I don't want us to miss the humility of Solomon here. He is recognizing that everything he did was wrong, sinful. His heart was wrong. That actually reveals a, a tremendous amount of humility a posture of recognizing that he didn't do it right. Think about that. He's admitting before Israel and before God, I didn't do this right at the very deepest level. And so he finally turns to God and look what he says in 24. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat, drink, and find enjoyment in his work. And you're like, but Solomon, for for two chapters, Everything was meaningless. And then you drop this statement out of nowhere? It, it, look, it, it, the reality is this is given by God. Look at in verse 24. The person, there's nothing better for a person that he should eat, drink, and find enjoyment in his toil. Uh, this, g- these gifts are from the very hand of God. This is his design from the very beginning. If you remember, we were created in the garden to have fellowship with God, to enjoy the fruits of the garden, to enjoy worship with God, to enjoy one another. And then we chose the gifts over the giver. And we've been doing the same thing ever since. That's why kind of life's motto for most of humanity is eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's all life offers. And, and here, Solomon is finally saying, no, it's, the, it's actually the opposite. He, he's not say, saying something outrageous here. He's saying that the person should enjoy what he eats and drinks and what he works for because God is the one who provides it. It is from the very hand of God that these blessings come. He, he's saying that there is a right and good enjoyment that can actually be found in the things that God provides. I want us to hear that. That we can enjoy the gifts that God gives rightly. And if we can enjoy the gifts that God gives rightly, that means that everything all of a sudden has meaning. Everything is flipped upside down. The problem is not the things that we pursue. The the problem is the value we place on the things that we pursue. And and, and this begins to sober us uh, when we we view it from being gifts from the hand of God. And the reality is these things cannot support, they cannot support the type of worship we're giving to them, the type of attention that we are throwing upon them. Now, look where uh, joy is found Verse 26, for the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering. Actually, you guys jump up with me, verse 25. So how do we view these blessings rightly? Look with me in 25. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? There is no enjoyment apart from him. That's what it's saying. If we are satisfied in God, we will be rightly satisfied in the things that God gives. So joy is found in God, and then joy is found from, in the gifts that God provides from his hand. Look with me in verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering, collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This is also vanity and striving after wind. Look at what God gives to his people. He gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. These are gifts that are given from God. Solomon didn't get wisdom, knowledge, and joy from his own toiling, from his own work. He got it because God gave it to him. This is the kind of God that we serve. Uh, Those who are sinners, look what they get. They simply collect and they gather and they stick in that cycle of vanity the entire time. And then they give to the one who pleases God. Maybe not all in this world, but we do see in Matthew 5 that the meek shall inherit the earth. Uh, All of our blessings will come from the Lord one day, ultimately back to us as we worship God rightly. So who is the one who pleases God? Well, we see at the end of the book, the one who does the commandments and the one who fears God is the one who pleases God. Now, I want us to know that the preacher is not saying that if you do good things that God is going to give you good things in return. That would be a works-based mentality. He's not saying that. What what he's kind of inferring is all have sinned, all, all have fallen short of the glory of God. God provides the son who makes things right, but he's interested in the ones who are interested in him. He is interested in the ones that want wisdom from him. He's interested in the ones that are knowledgeable and desire to know him intimately. The the reality is this, the gifts under the sun do not make sense to us unless we hold tightly to the one who is over the sun. That is the reality and he's kind of bringing this up and, and preachers kind of get this wrong all the time. Sometimes we have uh, prosperity preachers that are saying, hey, ask God for the gifts because the gifts are what we want. Uh, we also have preachers that say, uh, or that preach some form of like asceticism where it's like, you can't enjoy anything in this life, uh, but, uh, but all you have to do is obey God. And, and what he's saying here is no, enjoy everything because it's been given by God. And, and in fact, you cannot enjoy anything apart from him. And so we want to know God. We want to walk with God. We want to live with God in this life under the sun. I recently watched the movie Chariots of Fire about a, a missionary named Eric Little who was also a runner in the 1924, it's a true story, in 1924 Olympics, he won the gold medal in the four hundred. And he, he has this desire to go back to the mission field where he was raised, but before he did, uh, he's having a conversation with his sister who's saying, you need to go back to the mission field. And he's like, I will, I will go back to the mission field if the Lord wills, but this is what he said. The Lord made me for a purpose, which is missions, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. What what a redemptive way to consider living life under the sun. I enjoy God because I run fast is what he's saying. He made me a certain way. Now, in closing, here are a few takeaways that I want us, we're gonna get real practical here. How does this flush out in our lives? Well, the first thing is this. We need to learn to enjoy God. We, We need to learn to enjoy God. Go to the Psalms And just see how the psalmist enjoy God. Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you. I I want to be near you. I want to be next to you. I want to be satisfied in you, is what the psalmist is saying. Uh, Psalm 91, take refuge in God. You can be safe in God. Enjoy such security. Enjoy promises that God has made to you. Psalm 143, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you in a parched land. It's only God who satisfies in that parched land. Learn to be near God. Learn to enjoy God. Uh, learn to enjoy all the wisdom that God has. And then check this out. He actually says when we ask, James chapter 1, if we ask for wisdom, He will give it to us so that we can filter how we are to interact in this world with wisdom and knowledge that he gives. Learn to enjoy God, he is a good God. He loves us. Enjoy to, learn to enjoy the Savior because it's through the Savior, as Paul says in Romans 5, that we're reconciled back to him in fellowship. We can walk in the Garden of Eden again because he has reconciled us. We might not be physically there just yet, but in fellowship with Him, as we enjoy Him in this world, we recognize that this is just a temporary residence preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond compare. I love what Piper says enjoy God. Enjoying God is the root of all Christ exalting love and all God exalting worship. It is our first and greatest duty. Do you enjoy God? Not, not what He gives, not coming to church by itself do you enjoy the living God number two enjoy all that God has given you enjoy the gifts Uh, a people of joy and happiness and thanksgiving to God for everything that he has given Uh, thank you God for stake for satisfying Uh, God Thank you for the wisdom that you, I see some heads shaking. Uh, Thank you, God, for the wisdom that you provide us so that we don't have to live in vanity. God, thank you. Please, would you give us wisdom to think about our own deaths so that we can be urgent for the things that you want us to be urgent for. Thank you that we live under the sun, but you still provide apples and mangoes and friends and a church uh, where we preach the word to each other and we come and we learn to serve and grow in love, thank you for these gifts. But we will not enjoy one another, we will not enjoy these gifts apart from God. So maybe a good question to ask yourself is, where is your vanity? Uh, What are you holding up above the giver? Just ask yourself and then maybe flush it out in some of the small groups that you're in this week. Number three, teach the everlasting things to your kids. We just talked about how everything that we work for, we accumulate, we're gonna to give to somebody else. And, and then as we're working for it, we're gonna be miserable, right? That would be fun at 6 a.m. on a Monday morning Would we consider that. But it is possible, according to the scriptures, to pass on things to generations that are life-giving, that are eternal, Let's pass on the wisdom of God, the gospel of God, the eternal things of God to our children and to our children's children. These things don't burn off. These things are magnified in heaven. Uh, This is why we do family worship because there are things that satisfy the soul that we want to give to our children that will be a blessing to them in this life and in the life to come. Number four, work for the glory of God. Work, as we've already said, is a God-given mandate. We have been called to subdue the earth and to exercise dominion over it. We see this in Genesis one and two. As image bears, he's given us the duty to multiply and he's given us the duty to work the ground. That is the reality that we're living in. So work has always been a part of the design of God. It's when we chose sin uh, that that work was distorted. Work is hard because of the curse, but we are still called to work and we can work for the glory of God now because we have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And so we are back with the mindset of everything we do is for the glory of God. You might be asking practically, how do we glorify God? How do we do this? Well, first, a good place to start is repentance. Recognizing where we don't work for the glory of God, but we work for ourselves to accumulate things for ourselves that we think will satisfy. Uh, Maybe we're discontent and we're wanting a different job. Maybe it's a sin against a boss or a coworker. Whatever your vanity is in your work, bring it before the Lord, turn to our gracious God, and you are forgiven in Christ. Uh, number two, work with joy. Whatever you do in this life, consider it joy in the task that you have. Uh, maybe you're an administrator. Uh, consider that God is a God of order. Uh, consider that God wants things to be uh, done well and practiced well and do it for the glory of God as you're an image bearer of him. Uh, if you're a manager or, um, or a Jedi, uh, think about the fruitfulness of stewardship and how you caring for people actually tends to people's needs. If you create, consider how our God creates out of nothing. Whatever it is you do in this life, think of it redemptively. I remember talking to a friend of mine who's a pilot from American Airlines, and he was, he was telling me when he's in the sky, he's beholding the glory of God. But he was also thinking this one time, he's like, but God's also given me dominion over the birds of the air. And so he's flying with the birds, caring for the birds as he navigates as best as he can, caring for the souls of those uh, on board who are made in the image of God. Think about your work redemptively. Work hard and work hard as if you're working for God and not the man. That might be a helpful perspective change for each of us. We're not working for, uh, for man necessarily, we're working for the glory of God and we're respecting man that God places over us. Treat people with love and respect and dignity. Uh, be a model employee and just remember that everything you do, though it might not be seen by man, is seen by God. I love that little story where the, the widow, she gives her two mites She's just doing it to be faithful, and the Son of Man is watching her. Everything we do is seen by God, everything. And then fifth, oh, excuse me, last, be interested in people's lives. Take people to lunch, ask about their families, ask them questions, care for them. I loved Luke Kreit's testimony last last Sunday night at our members meeting. Just intentionally investing in the place that God has placed you that we work and we toil for his glory and for the love of neighbor. Number five and finally, live a life that pleases God. Remember we talked about this in verse 26? Well, how how do we please God? There's one who pleases God and then there's one who doesn't please God and I do want us to be careful. This isn't a burden of work that we're talking about here. Uh, It says in Hebrews chapter 11 verse six that without faith, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So how do we please God? We please God by faith. And faith that that God gives to us. We recognize that God has a plan for us as we're in exile and we trust the plan. It's in Christ to bring us back into the garden. We, We have faith that he will give us wisdom in this life when we ask for it. Uh, We begin to live by faith, and our faith is centered directly on the Son of Man, the Son of God, who is Christ Jesus the Lord. And in this we have our curse been born for us. Christ bared the curse for us. Uh, In Christ we receive forgiveness. Do you believe this? Do you remember this? Bring this to your mind yet again. Uh, we're, We're made into a people here in this wilderness. And then we've got one who is going to bring us back to lead us out of this exodus into the promised land yet again and his name is Jesus. Do you believe in the son of man? Are you putting your faith in him because this pleases God? And then he gives us wisdom and knowledge and joy so that we can handle the gifts that he gives us faithfully. This is how you become a Christian, is by putting your faith in him. This is how your inheritance is sealed. Now that we're Christians, everything actually matters. Everything is flipped upside down. There is meaning in your work and in your life. Hold on to that when Tuesday is difficult. There is meaning in your life. And then there's a warning for the sinner in verse 26 as we close our final uh, statement. If you have not placed your faith in Christ, if you don't know Christ, then your life, I must tell you this, it's vanity and you will never be satisfied. This isn't some manipulative tactic. This is truth because this is the living word of God and this is what it says. And you might recognize this already but by placing your faith in Christ Jesus, there is hope. Luke chapter 12, there's a man who's acquired all of this stuff and he builds bigger barns for himself and then he gets more stuff and he builds bigger barns and Jesus says in Luke 12, he says, fool, your soul is demanded of you tonight. Place your faith in Christ. Toil no more. You can't build your way up to God. You can't get all your pain to go away. All your toil, all your vexing, you cannot do it. But Jesus and all his work and all his grace has been done for us and that's our hope.